Welcome to the podcast, Conquering Cancer Together. I'm Wendy Kaplan, and my co-host is Dr. Marianne Fregola. We're really excited to announce that we will be hosting a four-part podcast series that will focus on a variety of issues related to cancer. This is thanks to a generous grant from Pfizer, who shared our mission in providing world-class, patient-centered, affordable care to patients with cancer and blood disorders in their communities close to family and friends. Today's episode will focus on colon cancer. We'll start off by examining the latest statistics and trends in colorectal cancer, and then we'll explore various aspects of the disease, including screening recommendations, diagnosis and treatment options. We'll also look into post-treatment management, including the role of diet and lifestyle and how they can affect recurrence. References and links on the information discussed today can be found in our show notes. We are thrilled to have Dr. Alfredo Torres, medical oncologist at New York Cancer and Blood Specialists, here with us today to talk about colorectal cancer. Thank you, Marianne and Wendy, for having me. It's an honor to be on your podcast. Looking forward to have a nice conversation about colorectal cancer, screening, survivorship, treatments, and so much more. So let's get started. We know colorectal cancer is common in the U.S. and the world. Can you tell us about the current stats on colorectal cancer? Also, we've been hearing about an increase in colorectal cancer among younger populations. What is your take on this trend? Absolutely. Well, unfortunately, colorectal cancer is actually very common. And it's actually also a lethal disease. And just to give you an example, there was approximately 153,000 new cases diagnosed last year and 52,000 deaths last year, making it the third most common cancer and the third most common deadliest cancer in the U.S. The incidence between male and female is about the same, almost one to one. And unfortunately, even though it's a disease of the elder, your statement was completely true that we have been diagnosing patients with colorectal cancer at much younger ages. Just to give you an example, and we're going to talk about more in detail later on, the age of screening has changed because of the new diagnosis in younger patients. Do you think people are starting to realize that they're not too young to get colorectal cancer? So absolutely. And I think that's a great question. If I can recommend or I can suggest anything to be taken from this conversation will be to recognize the importance of screening. If we can actually detect colorectal cancer during a screening method, the chances of curing the patient with less involved methods is extremely high. And I think that's very important. So we have to bring awareness, and this is a very, very good way of doing so by a podcast, to the majority of people that we can and to overcome the fear of having a screening test such a colonoscopy because that actually can save lives and it will save lives and it's proven. Okay, so let's start off with the basics. What are some symptoms people need to look out for? That's, that's a great question. So I will say that the most common symptoms for colorectal cancer, unfortunately, is nothing. So it's asymptomatic. And I would like to divide the the possibility of presentation or how it presents in three different type of scenarios. The first one is the asymptomatic patient, the screening. That's the ideal way that we will diagnose colorectal cancer. The second one is local tumor symptoms. And the third one are emergencies, which we're hoping to never encounter. And those are usually caused by either obstruction or perforation of the tumor. So in a symptomatic which is what we're hoping to diagnose the colorectal cancer as. It's usually detected during screening. We'll talk more about screening later, which I think is very important. Signs of local tumor could be changes in bowel habits, 
so constipation, thinning of the stool caliber, rectal bleed, either dark blood, which is called melena, or bright red blood per rectum, which is called hematochezia, rectal mass, iron deficiency anemia. We have actually diagnosed patients with colorectal cancer that they come for a workup of anemia. And then other abdominal symptoms can be found. But I want to emphasize that not all patients will have symptoms. And then the later scenario are the emergencies, which are usually obstructions and or perforation. So it's acute abdominal pain, patient that is very sick, elevated white blood cell count, et cetera. And we're hoping to never encounter that uh, scenario. So we can safely say that if somebody feels like they have some sort of symptoms, it's never unrealistic to just get screened. Not at all. Not at all. Ideally, we will want everybody to get screened based on the guidelines, but I will say that there's n- that it's never too late to start screening. And, and whenever in doubt, seek medical attention and see if you're a good candidate for screening, and I will have to say that everybody is a candidate for screening. There are certain rules about when you should start being screened for, and we can go and take a deep dive about that because I think that's probably the most important thing. Yeah, yeah, so let's uh, let's walk us through the current recommendations for colorectal screening and how they may differ based on risk factors such as age, family history, race, and possibly other factors. Absolutely. So the current guideline was just recently changed, and the age of starting a screening tool was dropped to 45. So we used to screen everybody 50 and older, and this is for all comers, but now it's 45. And again, that's going back to the point about patients being diagnosed at an earlier age. We know that colorectal cancer can affect African-Americans and Native Americans, especially people from Alaska, a little bit more, but the recommendation about screening remains at 45. Now, if the patient has a family history of our genetic disorder, then some of the recommendations can change, and then that could be discussed with either a primary care physician or with a gastroenterologist if they need to be screened a little bit earlier. So as a rule of thumb, for everybody 45 and for some people with higher risk, they should start 10 years prior to the youngest uh, family member that was diagnosed. Or if they have another genetic condition, they should start colonoscopy even sometimes earlier, as early as an age of like 12, for example. There are some genetic diseases that you have to start at 12. Wow. Yeah. Now, screening comes in two flavors. So you have what we call the stool-based testing, and you have the direct visualization testing. So stool-based testing is usually like a cold blood cards or fit cards. There's a common test called Cologuards, and they're great because they will tell you if there's any presence of blood, which is one of the main findings when you have a disease in the colon like colorectal cancer. However, like we explained before, not all colorectal cancers will present with bleeding. The second testing, and probably my favorite one and the one that I recommend the most, is actually direct visualization test. So that is sigmoidoscopies, colonoscopies, or virtual colonoscopies, which is just uh, doing a prep but then using CT scans to actually check on the colon. Out of those three, probably my personal favorite will be the colonoscopy because it actually has two purposes. It's diagnostic because you will go and see if there's any polyp, but it's also therapeutic because you can take the polyp out. And if you do so, you're actually preventing cancer from growing and becoming bigger. And if you do so, that could be the end of the therapy that you need. People are afraid, but you only if you do a successful colonoscopy, you probably only have to do it every 10 years. If you do have polyps, then the gastroenterologist will tell you the frequency that you have to do the colonoscopy. But till this day, I will have to say that probably the most complete diagnostic testing will be the colonoscopy. So let's talk colonoscopies. They definitely can be a little scary for some people. So can you help us allay some of those fears and break down what the procedure entails? 
And full disclosure here, um, Marianne and I have had colonoscopies in the past year. And I can honestly say it's not as bad as people think or might think. I, I had a funny story. My one of my attendings, he actually had insomnia, and he said that the only good night's sleep that he had was when he had a colonoscopy. So yeah, I I, I will have to say that colonoscopies could have a bad reputation. However, it is the most commonly done outpatient procedure in the U.S. The risk of having a complication is about 1.6 percent, so very very low. And in the right hands, which are most of our skilled gastroenterologists, I will have to say that the risks are, are, are almost not there. When I talk about risks, it's usually bleeding, the most common one that we see. When you remove a polyp, you can have a little bit of bleeding. The risk of infection is also there. And then some reaction to anesthesia. Now, severe complications from colonoscopy are even more rare than 1.6%. So I'm saying that the odds are in the favor of the patient. I will, I will also say that People are afraid of the prep that you have to do for the colonoscopy. And yes, it could be a little annoying to take a, med- a medication that will make you have bowel movements the day before, but then it actually goes fast very quickly. During the procedure itself, like we mentioned, you're actually kind of like sleep. It's not general anesthesia. It's just a little sedation that you that you have. And you don't remember the procedure at all. So it's actually pretty uh, pleasant and comfortable. And fear shouldn't stop you from doing something that could actually save your life and when done the right way, it should be very safe. And you wake up refreshed. And you do wake <laughs> up refreshed, which is also another perk, yes. And these tests are available, obviously, uh, as talking with your physicians, whether you're doing a fecal stool test, which you can do in the office. These are very, very easy to discuss and easy to get the results, right? Absolutely. Now, another thing is important. If you do a fecal or cold blood test card, and that comes back to be positive, you will need a colonoscopy. So the reality is though those testings are great for screening, but at the end of the day, you might have to circle back and get the colonoscopy done. And just to reiterate, you had said the risks are very low if it's done correct, and the benefits just outweigh all those risks. 100%. So many, so many cases that can be preventable or caught so early and just, you know, improve survival outcomes. So so if you, if you see it from all points of view, survival is definitely there. Hence, it's one of the very few screening things that we have for cancer. You know, we only have a handful of screening methods like, you know, CT scans for lung cancer. We have cervical cancer. We have the pap smear. We have mammograms for women, and we have colorectal cancer screening. That's that's about it. You know, we only have like four things that we can screen for, but that means that it's proven that it improves your overall survival, meaning the chances of you beating a disease such as cancer. The second thing is that when you do it the right way and you do it at the right time, at your right age, for example, starting at 45, you should technically find something small enough that could be treated and su- successfully treated with very minimal involvement meaning that probably the colonoscopy could be the only thing that you need, you know? So we're trying to prevent to do either a big surgery or having chemotherapy after a diagnosis. And the best way of doing so is getting the colonoscopy done at the right time. So go get your colonoscopy. Oh, 100%. (laughs) Highly highly recommended. (laughs) So now once a patient or an individual commits to the screening, what would be the next step? Where would they go to get this done? So... The colonoscopies are readily available uh, locally, pretty much anywhere in the U.S. Uh, There are many ambulatory centers that the gastroenterologists actually practice uh, in. And like we mentioned before, like the majority of colonoscopies are done as an outpatient center. So the first step that just to make it easier to say, go see your primary care. I'm sure your primary care already works with a gastroenterologist that they can recommend. 
Or if you have an availability just to go and see a gastroenterologist, you can just go ahead and, and go. So if you actually have the, the availability of seeing a gastroenterologist, they can also uh, help you to schedule the, the colonoscopy and all insurances should cover the colonoscopy. So, you know, financial toxicity shouldn't be an issue or a, a limiting step into getting uh, screened for it. You want to be proactive instead of reactive. I will encourage people to go for a screening. And if we are going to detect colon cancer in a patient, we want to do it in the asymptomatic phase instead of waiting until the patient has symptoms and then act upon it. So we always hear the terms biomarkers and gene testing. Can you explain what these terms mean and how they are relevant to the treatment plan? Absolutely. So like we were mentioning before, the majority of the patients actually will go for a screening at the age of uh, 45, and that's a new guideline recommendation. However, we know that sometimes 5 to 10% of colorectal cancers could be driven by genetic mutations. As a general rule of thumb, and that's something that can be discussed by uh, your primary care or by a gastroenterologist, if a patient has a personal family history of multiple cancers, including colorectal cancer, a personal or family history of uh, diagnosis of Lynch syndrome, uh, a patient has a history of tumor-deficient mismatch repair, which is a, a tumor that has uh, some specific mutations. If a patient has 10 to 20 uh, colonic polyps called adenomas, more than three colonic hamartomas or two small bowel hamartomas, or a family member of any genetic disorder that is related to colorectal cancer, they should be screened for genetic testing. It's very easy to do it. Actually, you do blood work, and they will tell you if you actually carry a gene that will increase your lifetime incidence of having colorectal cancer. Some of those genes can actually be very serious. So if you do end up having one of those genes, sometimes the risk of having colon cancer could go up to 100% during lifetime. Some of them actually much less than that. But it is worth actually doing blood work and, and knowing the risk so you can actually be on the right track in terms of screening and surveillance. That screening sounds so scary to people, right? So when we talk about genetic testing and it's such a big fear, but in the in the reality becomes is that you wouldn't screen as close as you normally would if you didn't know you had those mutations. Absolutely. So those screening tools, although very frightening to a patient, can really be helpful in their overall you know outcome. So that that's a great point that you're bringing. That's the discussion that I have with my patients when they come for uh, genetic testing. So the first thing that I tell them is that information is power. The more that we know, the better we can help you. So we need to know where we're facing because sometimes the colonoscopies in a normal patient will happen every 10 years if a colonoscopy is clean. But if you do have this risk, you probably have to get a colonoscopy every three. So it doesn't really change too much in terms of, of you know, the approach. It's not that you have to go for surgery or something else, but you will have to do the colonoscopies probably closer in, in time. But that, that's about it. Now, if you do have that genetic testing and you do the colonoscopy every three years, Theoretically speaking, you should be absolutely fine because a polyp will be found at a very early stage and then it could be treated and you'll, you're going to be fine. So again, information is power. The more that we know, the better we can help you. Love that. Yeah, me yeah. too. <laughs> mm -hmm. Can you provide information about whether staging is significantly impacted by the presence or absence of cancer in the lymph nodes? Absolutely. That's a great question. So Another thing that I tell my patients when they have been diagnosed with, with cancer is that, first of all, we have to follow a logical pathway. Diagnosis is the first step, which is usually done by biopsy. 
Uh, that could be with a needle or with a surgery. The second step is staging, which could do, it can be done by imaging, or if the patient already had surgery, we see all the, the, the material under the microscope. And the third part is treatment. If I don't have a good diagnosis and a good staging, I don't know how to treat a patient. The lymph node is very important for cancer. We actually follow a staging guideline called the T as in Thomas, N as in Nancy, M as in Mary, T and M staging. T stands for tumor size. In actually, in colorectal cancer, it stands for tumor invasion, how deep is going into the layers of the colon. N stands for lymph node involvement, and M stands for metastasis. So the the lymph nodes are actually these structures that they work as a filter. So if the tumor is actually trying to get out of the colon and go somewhere else before it becomes metastatic, meaning that it went to another organ, the lymph nodes are trying to trap all those cells. But when the lymph nodes are positive, the staging usually is up. As a rule of thumb, the staging goes from 1 to 4, 4 being metastatic. The higher you are in the staging, usually the more advanced the tumor is. When the lymph nodes are involved, you're usually diagnosed already as a stage 3. That doesn't mean that you cannot be cured. I have plenty of patients of stage 3 that are completely cured after getting the right therapy, but more involved therapy needs to happen. Basically, patients that are stage 3 will require chemotherapy for a short period of time, but they will require chemotherapy. And since we're discussing chemotherapy, can we talk about a brief overview of the possible treatment options available and share some of your methods for effectively communicating these options to patients? Absolutely. So if we were saying that colonoscopy is scary when you hear the word chemotherapy, that's even scarier. I have probably counted in my hands the amount of patients that are willing to get chemotherapy after I tell them that they need it. However, we have made huge advancements in how to treat patients with chemotherapy and how to mitigate the possibility of having side effects. The first thing that I will have to say, colorectal cancer is a multidisciplinary team approach. When we start and we see a patient being diagnosed with colorectal cancer, we need a gastroenterologist, a colorectal surgeon, an oncologist, a radiologist, a pathologist, and I will always try to include a nutritionist and our supportive care team. So the reason I do that is that the better we treat the patient, in a holistic and complete way, the better the success of mitigating side effects from chemotherapy and increasing the quality of life. The chemotherapy, when we do it for curative purposes, so stage one, two, three, one, we don't treat as much actually from stage two to three. When we use it, it's actually a finite therapy. Three to six months of therapy could be oral, a combination of two drugs, oral and IV, or both IV. But what we do is we tailor that to the patient's comorbidities and age. And then we give them a lot of medications to try to prevent any possible side effects known to that combination of therapy. We monitor the patient very closely during the therapy and after the therapy to try to prevent any short-term reactions or side effects from chemotherapy and any long-term complications from chemotherapy as well. And I know this may vary from patient to patient, but is there a typical tolerability of treatment for the majority of patients? And can you provide any insight on some common short and long-term side effects? Absolutely. So this actually has been very well studied. Uh, there has been studied by age group, and we know that age is a number, but it will give you a good reference about how patients can tolerate the treatment. Colorectal cancer is usually a disease of the elder, and we have a lot of experiences treating older patients with chemotherapies. And I will have to say that the combination of chemotherapy that we use to treat colorectal cancer or yeah, the combination of chemotherapy that we use to treat colorectal cancer is usually very well tolerated. 
I have to say that I, I barely have seen patients that cannot tolerate the full therapy, but we always have as a possibility those adjustments, those reductions, delayed interruptions of the treatment if needed to be, but in the majority of the cases, they are very successful in completing the therapy that will help them preventing the cancer from coming back. So one of the things that stands out to me is that we can sometimes look at this as like an insurance policy when we give this chemotherapy, right? And can we talk about some of the supports that we have available? You did mention other teams that are available, and we want to be proactive in a lot of these symptom management. So how do you refer to help them get through their treatments? Very, very good questions as well. So two things. So first of all, you want to maximize the odds of being successful in anything that you do, and we take that approach in oncology, and we take that very seriously. So the higher you go on the staging that we mentioned, you know, one, two, three, you are your risk of having the cancer coming back, they get higher as well. And the only thing that we can do to mitigate that number and to bring it as low as possible is using, using chemotherapy. Uh, and in order for chemotherapy to be successful, the patient has to get the whole chemotherapy. In order to try the patient to get a complete regimen, you know, have a full cycle of chemotherapy and be successful, have good quality of life, we incorporate different support systems. And one of the ones that we have is the support care uh, you know, locally we do it with you, Marianne, and it's readily available with us, which I think is being a cornerstone of our success in treating patients with chemotherapy. So the idea is for them to be as close as normal during this troubled time of being diagnosed with cancer and having to go through chemotherapy. The less side effects, the less you affect their quality of life, the better you have your odds of increasing a complete therapy for them. And I'll have to say that, that we like to look at it the other way as well. We like to be proactive in, in preventing the side effects from even happening. And we use your support, uh, you know, to mitigate those side effects. But we also are very holistic. And, we, and any patient that is starting chemotherapy in our facility at New York Cancer and Blood also gets a consultation with nutritionists, which is a big, big role in helping the patients that not just going through chemotherapy, but also try to prevent a disease like colorectal cancer from coming back. You, you would agree that these supports help the compliance overall then, and that's the importance of this is to, it seems overwhelming for all these appointments, but it's really to aid in the treatments and compliance of the patient. So at the beginning seems to be a lot, but I will have to say that we uh, have narrowed this to a science and we have a very seamless process on how everything has to happen. And I will have to say that I have always heard good things about how we work. You know, when they see the efficiency on, on how we operate, and how much we take off the plate for the patient so they can concentrate on fighting the disease that they have to fight and they don't have to think about scheduling appointments, seeing somebody else, and we work around them and we help them to figure everything out and to how to navigate a very complex system like the medical system in the U.S., they are very, very happy with the results. And again, a lot of our success comes from making sure that the patient can tolerate the treatment the better they can, and that's huge for us. That's a really good point. When I first meet with a patient, one of the things I say is, you don't need to take notes. You don't need to remember everything. I will write it down. I will repeat it as many times as you need and make sure that you have the information that you need when you walk out. When I start discussing a newly diagnosed cancer in a patient, 
I will have I always tell them that out of the discussion that we have in the room, they will remember 50% and by the time they're out of the door, they will remember 25%. So we make sure that they don't have to remember everything. We have to do everything for them. We take all the behind the scenes away from the equation to make sure that we have a seamless process for the betterment of the patient. And that's very appreciated by the patient and we always get good feedback about it. Yeah, they do appreciate it so much. We discussed early stage disease, including screening and therapies. How can we approach the patients in the metastatic setting and what is on the forefront for additional testing and treatments? Absolutely. So one of the things that I like to point out is that cancer treatment has been evolving rapidly and we have been steering away from the conventional approach of treating everybody equally. And what we're doing right now is doing next generation sequencing. In layman's terms, we do testing. It can be done by tissue testing or in the blood and we can actually see some mutations that can pop up that we can target. And that will be more tailored treatment. And there are many companies in the US that actually have therapies to target those mutations. And those therapies are usually better therapies in terms of more overall survival and less toxicities for the patient, uh, which actually helps tremendously because we can tailor the treatment to the patient specifically. Nowadays, it is actually inconceivable to treat a patient without having next-generation sequencing testing done for them. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about the role of diet, nutrition, and lifestyle. Can you shed some light on how these elements fit into the bigger picture? Absolutely. I will try to do my best uh, with the <laughs> nutrition question. I know you're the expert, and please chime in. Uh, but I will have to say that I always try to think logically about everything. And the way that I see it is there is nutrition that is most of the, on the preventive uh, action. So, for example, let's talk about colorectal cancer, which is what we're doing. We know that processed red meats can increase the risk of colorectal cancer. So minimizing the intake of processed meats is actually very helpful. Now, that's in the preventive way. In the treatment or, 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 or you know, active phase, meaning a patient that needs to go for treatment such as chemotherapy, we want to make sure that the caloric intake and their hydration is actually very good so that can help mitigate some of the side effects that could happen from chemotherapy. And that is a key role. And I will have to say that I've always been asked on a newly diagnosed cancer patients about how nutrition plays a role and what they should be or shouldn't be eating while on therapy. And even when they're diagnosed, you know, there's a lot of uh, data out there that is not so reliable, you know, because we have the internet. So they they start Googling, and I will have to say that... No Netflix I'll, documentaries, yeah, no, please, no, no TikTok no, no internet in general. Come and ask us. It makes it easier. <laughs> so Dr. Google sometimes have good answers, but a lot of the time doesn't. So it creates confusion, and we want to take that confusion away, and I will actually encourage everybody before they start chemotherapy or after the diagnosis of cancer to come and speak with a professional about their nutrition and, and what to do with it. But I think it changes over time depending on when they are in their journey. You know, It's different prevention than treatment, but I will have to say that caloric intake and the right foods make a world of a difference on a patient undergoing chemotherapy. Exactly. So whether we're looking at this as preventative, when you're in treatment, your idea of healthy eating or doing this and doing everything the right way could just go off the table depending on how you're feeling and what side effects you may be experiencing. But there are things and real evidence-based information in terms of decreasing risk, like physical activity, but also, like you mentioned, processed meats, alcohol, alcoholic drinks, body fatness, things like that. 
I like to look at the positive and what we can do. And ideally, we want to get in whole grains, foods with fiber, dairy products, and also minimize the red meat. And this is a lot of information based off well-designed studies. So it comes from evidence-based information. And the strongest recommendations come from many well-designed studies that consistently show the same thing. So we have a good list of go-to organizations like the American Institute for Cancer Research, the American Cancer Society, and we'll put a lot of links in our show notes. And again, yes, be skeptical of the Netflix and other <laughs> documentaries and social media influencers. My wife always says that I shouldn't have gone to med school. I could have just read the night before or go on YouTube and I could get the answer. But no, there is there is reason to you our could. madness. They make a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but there is reason to our madness. There, there, is, there is reason why we study what we study, you know, and... Uh, understanding the right research is key and how to use the right information at the right time for the right patient is actually very important as well so you know don't shy from using any of our resources because you can get the right information for you you know there's always this myth about sugar being very detrimental for cancer and making cancer grow i hear it all the time it's it's a like very, every day <laughs> it, every single day so i will have to say the rule of thumb is yes i don't want i don't want you to feed off sugar all the time but you know Cancer will find sugar anywhere that they can. It will make it grow faster. It won't make it worse. So, you know, if a patient is supposed between eating something that is sugary and not eating anything for caloric intake, I'm okay with the sugar, you know, while the patient's on chemo. You know, granted, the patient is not a diabetic, of course. But, you know, these things, they come up all the time. So having the right guidance from somebody like you, for example, Wendy, makes a world of a difference for the patients and their families, which are trying to feed them all the time, you know, when they're going on their therapy. So I, I will highly encourage to, to, again, think about this as a multidisciplinary approach and having all the resources to back them up. And we're here to help the patient. So use us as a support and as a, as a resource for sure. Yeah, the patient and their family. And one thing I do want to stress is that it's important to find a balance that makes healthy eating and living an achievable goal. Absolutely. And that's, I was going to mention and to interject just to say that, you know, the, the main thing also is to avoid those extremes, right? So we have these families that associate eating with health, of course, and sometimes it's, a, it's an all or nothing thing. And I think that food should bring joy. So when they're not feeling well and they want to eat a little bit of ice cream for the extra that's calories, fine. that's absolutely fine. But everything is avoiding that extreme and, you know, using medications how we need to, to enhance that appetite or minimize side effects. And I think that's where that supportive element comes in as well. So if we all work as a team, whether it's nutrition and oncology, and supportive care for the side effect management. We treat nausea, we treat, you know, loss of appetite, and we avoid those big extremes, we'll get better outcomes. I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, uh, you're Italian, I'm Latino, <laughs> food, food, <laughs> food is, is huge. Yeah, food, food is, is life. life. <laughs> so I will have to say that, that that is true. But when you're trying to force feed a patient that is nauseous, then the ultimate result is that you can make the nausea worse. That's when a team like yours, Marianne, comes very handy because if you control the nausea, if you are proactive about how they feel, you know, about that changing in taste that could happen from some of the chemotherapies and, and they're provided and taking the right medication, then the appetite will come in second. So the appetite will come after that and then you can actually have a patient eating much better after the symptoms are resolved, you know? Yeah, so, it, it's yeah. very distressing for some patients because again, you know, you, they do want to eat. They do want to, they, they don't want to feel like that. So it is very distressing. And, and when they associate that with their illness, it makes them feel even worse. So Absolutely. validating their, what they're feeling and, and going through symptoms management is, is definitely essential. Absolutely. 
both of you made the point about not wanting to take medication. I think I hear that a lot too. So I always try to say if your doctor recommended it, please take it. There's a reason. So one of the common side effects that we could see, and I say could because we don't see it all the time, but we could see with chemotherapy is nausea. Nausea comes in a cycle, you know, and you start having a severity, let's say from 1 to 10, you start having nausea of 2. And the common thought is, oh, I'm not going to take the medication. I'm just going to wait and see how it plays out. And then the nausea goes from a level of 2 to a level of 5. You say, okay, well, now it's going to go away. And then when you have the nausea at 10 and you're actually puking, then you take the medication. It doesn't work that well. But if you take the medication when the nausea started at a 2 and you break that cycle, then the patient won't have any nausea and then they will be able to eat and they will feel better and you won't have to come for hydration. So being proactive and breaking those cycles of pain, nausea, and some other symptoms actually go a very long way. So taking the medication as prescribed is, is, is for, for a reason. And, you know, our, our first reaction is like, I don't want to take more medication. Yeah, I'm going to wait it out. Exactly. Yeah, it out. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. taking the medication at the right time will make a big difference in how we can mitigate some of the side effects from either getting worse or whatnot. I often joke with my patients, especially the ones that don't like the medications, and I say, listen, I I wish I can give you an award at the end of this that you didn't take anything, but I'm not going to. And they get a kick out of that because (laughs) I'm not going to give you anything. So, you know, just take the medicine. And it just creates a little bit of lessened fear, and it makes them laugh a little. And I say, listen, I'll draw you something if you really want, but take the medicine. Because it does become a cycle. One thing leads to the next leads to the next. And then you can't get over that hump. So being stoic and taking medication, (laughs) that doesn't help at all. doesn't help. we should have awards. Yes. (laughs) We should. (laughs) Now, of course, we've asked you a bunch of questions. So, Dr. Torres, is there something specific you would like to mention or that you feel is important in the overall care Uh, of the colorectal patient? Yeah, absolutely. So I will have to say that don't go by symptoms. Don't let fear drive you or paralyze you. Screening saves lives. If you take anything from this podcast, will be to go for screening at the right time. Whenever confused, just talk to your primary care Talk to your gastroenterologist. See what the family risk is. But for everybody without any special risk, 45. Go. Do it. Don't have anybody waiting. I can guarantee you that you know more than one person that already had a colonoscopy and it was successful. So please don't let any fear from stopping you to get something that could definitely save your life. So screening is the most important thing. And I will encourage everybody to do so. And we just can't thank you enough for being our special guest for today's podcast. Absolutely. Our first podcast. Thank you very much. Very this happy to so be informative. here. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you, guys. Thank you for joining us today for our first episode of Conquering Cancer Together. We hope you enjoyed it and found it informative. Please share this podcast with anyone you feel would benefit. We welcome your feedback, so feel free to send us a note in the comments. We hope you tune in for more episodes of our four podcast series sponsored by Pfizer. Links to resources and references and other information can be found in our show notes. We are also all over social media, so please find us and like us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. In addition to our social media outlets, you can find us close to home conquering cancer together.